Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Tonight, the House of Representatives is entering week three without a speaker. Eight candidates are now vying for the job after one dropped out in the last hour. And right now, as we speak, Republicans are meeting behind closed doors to figure out some kind of a path forward before an internal vote tomorrow. Don't hold your breath. After all of the reports of screaming and cursing, some physical altercations in previous meetings, I really can only imagine what is going on in that room right now. We're going to talk to some people who do know in just a moment. But if you're wondering out there why this matters and why we are still talking about this circus, well, the thing is, nothing can happen in Congress. No new money for Israel. No new money for humanitarian efforts in Gaza. Nothing without a speaker. Now is a time when we really actually need government to function. And you'll never guess who's involved in all of this dysfunction behind the scenes, or maybe you will guess. Look, Donald Trump's support may not have propelled Jim Jordan, but it came pretty close to getting an election-denying defender of the January 6th insurrectionist, that's Jim Jordan, into the job that is second in line for the presidency. And Trump's fingerprints are all over this latest round, too, because six of the remaining eight Republicans running voted to overturn the 2020 presidential election results. But one of those leading candidates is someone who at least didn't try to overturn the will of the people that time a guy named Tom Emmer. You might not know him if he walked up to you in the street, but here he is. And don't get me wrong, he's a very conservative and very Trumpy on just about every issue. But maybe he's a viable option. Maybe he's got some a little momentum, it seems. Except for one thing. Donald Trump doesn't seem to like him very much. Despite saying that he is staying, trying to stay out of the speaker's race as much as possible, and that Emmer called him over the weekend, which Emmer confirmed too, Politico is reporting that Trump allies have been working behind the scenes to destroy Emmer's candidacy. Now, you might be wondering, why is that? Is it because of irreconcilable policy differences? Of course not. It's apparently because Emmer has not forcefully defended Trump against the indictments he is facing and because he criticized him after January 6th. Save so the context for all of this. This is what Emmer said on January 6th. He said, quote, tonight, today's events in Washington were an unacceptable display of violence that runs counter to everything we stand for as a country. There is no excuse for reasonable debate and discourse to be replaced by destruction and chaos. Now, before we start giving out profiles and courage awards to Emmer or anyone else, you should know that Emmer also signed on to a Texas lawsuit in 2020 asking the Supreme Court to invalidate Biden's win. So basically, his election-denying street cred is actually pretty good, if you care about that sort of thing. Just not good enough for Trump. So at a time when we desperately need the House of Representatives to function, Donald Trump and his allies appear to be working behind the scenes to torpedo a plausible candidate for the speakership. Because two years ago, that candidate accurately described the attack on the Capitol as an unacceptable display of violence. That's basically where we are right now. Now, 
Obviously, this sort of mind-bending, self-involved pettiness is not really something new. Remember, it was just a couple weeks ago in the immediate aftermath of the terrorist attack by Hamas when Trump publicly attacked Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who he still holds a grudge against for congratulating Joe Biden on his victory in 2020. That's what the grudge is about. See, it doesn't matter if you're a prime minister of a close ally reeling from its own 9-11, it seems. It doesn't matter if you're a conservative, almost Trumpy, pretty Trumpy Republican running for speaker. And of course, it doesn't matter how minor the perceived slight was. Donald Trump will try and exact revenge no matter the circumstances and no matter the stakes. Now, Trump's support for Jim Jordan was not enough to get him elected. He's not the Speaker of the House right now. It is entirely possible his personal beef with Emmer won't be enough to sink him either. But it does seem like a complicating factor at a moment when the House Republican Conference desperately needs to get its act together for the good of the country. I want to begin our coverage tonight on Capitol Hill. Jake Sermon is the co-founder of Punchbowl News, and he joins me now. So, Jake, if anyone knows what's happening in that room that's not in that room, I think it's probably you. What are you hearing? What is going on behind closed doors right now? Well, Jed, this is a, a little bit of a, a, a boring affair, so to speak, in the sense that not that it's boring, but what is happening is the nine candidates, now eight candidates, because Dan Muser of Pennsylvania dropped out, are just basically reciting what they would do for the conference, which in some cases is tethered to reality, in some cases is not. Now, the big moment is when people leave the room and start talking about who they will or will not support. What Republicans have going for them right now is that they are exhausted, to be honest with you. We've had no speaker now for three weeks. There is critical. There are critical things that need to get passed, aid to Israel, potentially aid to Ukraine. Government runs out of money in just a, a couple weeks here. So they, they realize they have to get on the stick. And, and, and more importantly, or more immediately, is that if they don't get a speaker this week, some Republican or Democrat, but I would assume Republican, is going to take it into their own hands and and tried to make Patrick McHenry, who's sitting in that seat temporarily, try to put him permanently in that seat. So there's a lot of pressure right now. I don't know, and this is probably your next question, whether any of these candidates could get 217 votes. I don't know at this point. It's far from clear to me. They are These are a group of inexperienced and relatively new members to the leadership circles, if they are even in the leadership circles. So remember, this is like the fourth choice for many House Republicans. So we're digging pretty deep into the bins here. Yeah, we, some people, many of us, couldn't have picked many of them out from a, a lineup before before yesterday. So, Jake, I, I went, the Patrick McHenry thing, it sounds like we're, that's still alive. We could be talking about that even yeah. in a couple of days. That sounds like what you're saying. But I also want to, you've been on the Hill all day reporting. You're probably tired, too. Is there I buzz am. around any of these candidates? I mean, they have this closed-door meeting tomorrow at 9 a.m. So going into tonight, was there buzz around one or two over a few others? Yeah, I would say Tom Emmer, the House Majority Whip, is probably uh, the favorite right now because he has a large operation. He's in the leadership. He could raise money. He uh, has all the makings, and we said this about Steve Scalise and Jim Jordan as well, he has all the makings for somebody who should be able to climb up the leadership ladder. Probably in the second position is Byron Donalds, the Florida Republican who has, at least until recently, designs on being governor of the Sunshine State at some point. He is a relatively new member of Congress, very good on television, uh, uh, gets along with a lot of members of the House Republican Conference. But again, 
very little experience in legislating, especially in Washington. And then you have two other conservatives who are probably in the mix, but we would call lesser candidates. Uh, that's Kevin Hearn of Oklahoma, who made a fortune being a McDonald's franchiser, and Mike Johnson of Louisiana, who's already in the leadership in a pretty low slot. But remember, Jen, this, the important thing to think about here is that these are going to be the people representing, this is going to be the person representing House Republicans in negotiations against Joe Biden, Chuck mm-hmm. Schumer, Mitch McConnell, and Hakeem Jeffries, who have a combined 140 years, and I'm, I just calculated this so I know, of experience in Washington. This is not, this, this is going to be an unfair matchup for House Republicans if they ever get out of this mess. It is a very important job. Second in line to the presidency. Well, Jake, we'll be here till nine. So if you learn anything new, please come back and we'd love to get any update from you. Thank you so much for joining me this evening. And joining me now is the second highest ranking Democrat in the House, Democratic Whip, Congresswoman Catherine Clark. Uh, Congresswoman, thank you so much for joining me. My bet is that your caucus meetings are quite different from this one. But we're, we're now, of course, in the third week with no speaker. No end in sight. The government could shut down in a month. You can't pass assistance to Israel or help address the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Those are the things we've been talking about. What are we missing? What are the other impacts of not having a speaker? Well, Jen, thank you for having me. And you're exactly right. We are 25 days from the next shutdown three weeks of chaos and dysfunction, and there still is one clear path forward, and that is work with Democrats on behalf of the American people. And that has been our offer and continues to be our offer. Let's get back to doing the work that we were sent to Congress to do. And you've listed the things that are so important. Avoid a shutdown, address our national security and the needs of our allies. Continue the Democrats' work of lowering costs for the American people. And finally, elect a speaker who is going to defend democracy, not degrade it. And what we've seen so far, if we just look at last week, all of that was rejected to pursue a speakership of Jim Jordan. So we are in a very dangerous and extreme place with the House GOP. Now, uh, Jim Jordan, which is such a good example, I mean, he is an election denier, somebody who defended the insurrectionists. I could go on, uh, as I'm sure you could. And and Leader Jeffries obviously spoke about how there were he was not qualified. He shouldn't be. But there were men and women who were. Are you all discussing privately of these candidates or others? Is there a Republican candidate or Republican candidates you could work with or you would be comfortable working with? I think there are many different candidates that we could work with because it's not about a single person. It is about who is going to end this civil war and get back to work for the American people. Who is going to work with us on the deal that we already made and voted for back in June that set budget levels, that said, We agreed not to have any of these poison pills added into those bills. What we're seeing is a Republican Party that has rolled back that agreement and put national abortion bans in everything from defense to agriculture bills. I mean, they're 
full, wholehearted adoption of the most mega extreme parts of their caucus is a rejection of what the American people are asking us to do. Come together, put them first, and get back to the real work we have to do on their behalf. So you don't have to tell me who, because it might tank their candidacy, but of the eight candidates, is there anyone on that list, or more than one person on that list, that you could see yourselves working with as members of Democratic leadership? You know, again, we've we've been having this discussion. Send us somebody who's going to give us the tools to work in a bipartisan way to get back to work on all the things we need to do. And, you know, we were having these discussions last week when we saw 90 percent of their caucus reject working with Democrats, reject getting reopening the House in favor of electing Jim Jordan, Speaker of the House, someone who has plotted to overturn our elections, who is the author of the bill on a national abortion ban, who has never voted to feed hungry children in this country. I mean, he is so extreme in every way, a truth threat to our democracy. But somehow in this civil war, that was a better option than saying, let's go back to the agreements we've already made. Let's work with a Republican speaker to move our country forward. It was hard to believe that Jim Jordan emerged as he did for the time being, for that period of time. Now, there, there's still, and, and Jake Sherman was just telling me about this, how there is still this buzz among running Republicans that the Speaker pro tem, Patrick McHenry, who kind of came, kind of came and went, but it could come back to empower him with the ability needed to be Speaker. Is that something that you think Democrats could get behind if that's where Republicans land by the end of this week? You know, since January and the 15 rounds it took to elect Kevin McCarthy, the Democratic caucus has been extending our hand in bipartisanship. We have been saying, we understand you're in the majority, you're going to have a Republican speaker. But let's have somebody who brings the bills that are important to the American people to the floor just like we did in the majority. We were able to pass a bipartisan infrastructure bill that's making key investments right now in communities that are paying off, whether that's roads or bridges or broadbands or expanding EV infrastructure, key things, getting lead pipes out of our communities that I hear from constituents and people across this country is making a difference in their lives. When we were in the majority with the exact same thin majority, we were able to do amazing things because we were willing to work on what the American people sent us there to do, not a partisan extreme agenda. So I hope that they will come out of this next round of them trying to find a candidate for speaker with that goal in mind. Let's go back and, and look at what we were able to do. Infrastructure, increasing American manufacturing, lowering the cost of insulin, investing in green technologies. These are positive things for the American people that we put before them 
and encouraged bipartisanship. So we need to get back to what people are talking about around their kitchen tables and have the Republican Party stop their civil war, stop this march towards extremism and get back to work. Well, we'll see what emerges tonight if we're still in the middle of chaos. Uh, Congresswoman Catherine Clark, the whip, Democratic whip, thank you so much for joining me this evening. Uh, coming up, it was only Friday that New York judge, the New York judge threatened to throw Donald Trump in jail for violating a gag order. So why does the quadruply indicted ex-president think now is a good time to attack the special counsel overseeing his D.C. and Florida cases? Plus, eight trucks have entered Gaza. But as the humanitarian situation in the region continues to deteriorate, Chef Jose Andres tells me how his, his organization is providing food to both Israelis and Palestinians. But first, as Hamas releases two more hostages from Gaza, Michigan Congresswoman Elisa Slotkin joins me on the state of the conflict and how it is impacting her home state. Coming there comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app. Up next. Today, Hamas released two more hostages taken during its horrific October 7th terrorist attack on Israel. Nurit Yitzhak and Yoshevid Lifshitz were transported out of Gaza with facilitation from the International Committee of the Red Cross. Their release comes three days after Hamas released Judith and Natalie Ranan, an American-Israeli mother and daughter. But more than 220 people are still being held hostage, some of them Americans, and hundreds of Americans are stuck inside Gaza, unable to move through the Rafah crossing into Egypt. Even as preparations for a ground invasion pick up at the border, the Biden administration is also privately urging Israel to delay its ground offensive into Gaza in an effort to buy more time for hostage negotiations and for additional aid to be delivered. The White House also confirmed this afternoon that Iran is actively facilitating some of the proxy group attacks on U.S. bases in the Middle East. And President Biden has directed the Defense Department to plan or prepare for more, adding more fuel to the fears of the possibility of a larger war in the Middle East. Joining me now is Democratic Congressman Alyssa Slotkin. She's a former CIA analyst who served three tours in Iraq, and she has been in the rooms where these hard conversations are happening. She previously worked in both the Department of Defense and on the National Security Council, and she's a candidate for Senate. You have a lot on your plate. I, I want to start with the news that Iran is actively facilitating some of the proxy attacks on U.S. bases in the Middle East uh, and the confirmation from the White House today, because I think one of the pieces that hasn't received probably nearly enough attention is the possibility of a broader war here. 
How concerned are you about those reports and what you've seen over the past couple of weeks? Uh, I'm, I'm very concerned. And you can see it both um, with the administration, them saying, you know, American citizens in Lebanon depart. American citizens or, or dependents in Iraq depart. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can also see it with what the Iranians are saying and not saying, right? We haven't seen anything from the Grand Ayatollah that said, don't get involved, don't attack, wait. We're seeing quite the opposite. We're seeing Iranian state news kind of talk about, well, if this did become a re- regional war. Mm-hmm. Here are places Iran could really become more engaged with U.S. forces. So I, I think um, we have to prepare ourselves that this is a distinct possibility, the regionalization. And we have brought in a lot of military equipment into yeah. the region, right? Carrier strike group and more planes and to deter Iran, to send the message like, don't do this. Um, but I think we should all be starting to think through scenarios of if they do start to engage and hit uh, Israel from a bunch of fronts, hit U.S. forces from a bunch of fronts, what is our proportional response? What is our, you know, preparedness to get involved? And I, I think um, that's why many of us who have Middle East um, background are so stressed about what's going on right now. Is, is there anything you've been in these rooms in the Defense Department, the National Security Council, you've been in the briefings on the Hill. Is there anything that you would like to see the administration doing they're not doing now? Or what do you think they should be doing? Well, I, I think, um, you know, the Biden administration is trying to thread this needle, right, of um, their public support of Israel. Israel was grievously attacked and has the right to respond, but also privately using those conversations and those levers um, to really make sure that, frankly, Israel learns the mistakes that the United States made mm-hmm. in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. I served three tours in Iraq with the CIA. I know up close and personal what it means when you don't have a clear strategy, when you don't know what your end game is. Um, And I think it's so important right now that we just take a breath, um, particularly on a ground operation, um, and think through how it's going to go and then what the end goals are. You know, I served in Ramadi, right? I served in, in places that are urban warfare in the Middle East. It's some of the most deadly conflict you can get into. And we just want everyone, I mean, for, for, you know, the Israelis, for civilians in Gaza, to everyone to just take a breath um, and think through and not make the mistakes that we made, frankly. This weekend, a woman you know well who worked for you was tragically murdered. Samantha Wall was a synagogue president and a community leader. And the news has been a complete shock, I can only imagine. Uh, there was a press conference from the Detroit police chief today, and obviously there's not more that we know uh, about the motive or the person involved. I, I wanted to ask you about her personally and what she was like and what people should really know about her. Yeah, Sam was well known to a lot of people. She worked for me for two years, helped me set up my congressional office. Um, an amazing woman, um, a proud Jewish woman, but someone who believed to her core in interfaith dialogue. That's what she did for my office. That's what she's done for a lot of um, leaders in Michigan. And it was just, you know, her funeral was yesterday, and you could see that work in who showed up to her funeral. It was just a complete mixed picture of every faith and religion, every creed, because that's what she believed. Um, and um, we don't know the circumstances of how she died, but we know how she lived. And for a place like Michigan, which has such a big Middle Eastern population, a big Jewish population, people who feel so raw right now, um, um, it, the, the, what I'm trying to take out of, the, of her short life is further that message of coexistence, that we go forward together. Um, and we're all on this ship together. We have to figure out a way forward. Um, and that, to me, is, is her biggest 
blessing um, for what she left for us. I mean, as you just mentioned, I mean, Michigan has a, such a large American population, large Jewish American population. This is not being investigated, I, sh I should note, as a hate crime. Yeah. But it, it, this something like this elicits a lot of fear in people, understandably. How are you talking to your constituents? How should everybody be talking about what is a very raw and visceral moment in this country? Well, I first I think that the important thing is just to keep those lines of communication open, like call, you know, if you know someone who's personally connected to this conflict, call them and just say, look, I know you're in pain. I know if you're Palestinian American, you feel pain. If you're Arab American, Muslim American, you see yourself and you feel like, I mean, I, I've heard constantly as recently as Saturday visiting mosques, people feel dehumanized and that, you know, their lives aren't worth as much as Israeli lives. Like call someone and say, look, I know this is painful for you. Um, I I just want you to know that I recognize that pain. That's a bare minimum. I think at a maximum, we have to call out Islamophobia and anti-Semitism wherever we see it and by whoever who is doing it, even if they're our friends, even if they're someone close to us. And right now, our communities in Michigan are so um, um, worried about uh, attacks and sort of being threatened. Um, and we need to just, everyone needs to take a breath um, and remember, we certainly, we are all Michiganders. We go to the same schools. We eat at the same restaurants. Um, but that we, there is no breaking up into two different Michigans or two different Detroits. Um, uh, that, to me, I think is, is what I'm hearing from people. And we have to treat people equally, whatever side of this conflict they find themselves on. Some very good, full-throated, heartfelt advice uh, to end on. Congresswoman Alyssa Slacken, thank you so much for joining me with all of your expertise this evening. I appreciate it. Still ahead, he's currently facing nearly 100 total charges. So Donald Trump is doing what he knows best, blaming everyone else. Former DOJ official Mary McCord joins me here in studio, coming up next. This is going to come as a complete shock to you, if not actually. But Donald Trump is once again trying to spin his way out of his multiple criminal trials, stemming from four jurisdictions and 91 total charges. Here he is today in New Hampshire. We did nothing wrong. We did nothing wrong. This is all Biden indictments and impeachments. And this is all about Biden. This is all Biden stuff. All of these indictments that you see. I was never indicted. Practically never heard the word. It wasn't a word that registered. Practically never heard the word. I was never indicted. Quick fact check. Yes, he was. Notably, in one of those trials, the federal election interference case, Trump is no longer facing a gag order, at least for the moment. Judge Tanya Chutkin temporarily lifted the order on Friday, pending an appeal from the ex-president's lawyers, basically meaning he is once again free to lash out at whomever he wants without consequences for now. Trump couldn't even make it the entire weekend without once again attacking special counsel Jack Smith, something he was previously forbidden from doing. Late last night, he took to his social media platform to call Smith, quote, deranged, one of his favorite words for him. Trump also took the opportunity to attack a potential witness in a different trial, the Florida case, about his mishandling of highly classified government secrets. The ex-president went after Anthony Pratt, an Australian billionaire and Mar-a-Lago member who has reportedly been interviewed by the special counsel's office. According to those reports, Smith's office is investigating allegations that Trump shared nuclear secrets with Pratt, who went on to spill the beans to a number of friends and associates, including more than a dozen foreign officials. In the post, Trump denied those allegations and called Pratt, quote, a red-haired weirdo from Australia. 
very mature. It remains to be seen how the federal judge in that case, Trump appointee Aileen Cannon, will respond to the attack, if at all. Mary McCord served as the acting assistant attorney general for national security at the Department of Justice. She is now an MSNBC legal analyst and the co-host of the excellent podcast, the Prosecuting Donald Trump podcast, along with Andrew Weissman. She joins me now on set. So, Mary, lots to get to. But so Judge Chutkin's gag order is frozen until at least this Saturday or it's as early as Saturday um, while Trump's legal appeal plays out. What, What happens next? Yeah, and this is not that uncommon. In fact, Judge Chutkin, uh, back in the Trump v. Thompson case, the case involving the House Select Committee's request for presidential records, Judge Chutkin was the first judge to rule there. She also administratively Mm. stayed her order because she knew Trump was going to take an appeal. Mm -hmm. And she thought, let's preserve the status quo while he takes his appeal. And that's what she's done here. So administratively, she stated until either she rules herself that it should be stayed throughout the entire pendency of the appeal or when the circuit, the appellate court, could also say, we're going to stay uh, her order. Now, it doesn't mean there's literally no holds barred. It means her order is not in effect. But, you know, he still can't issue actual threats to people, right? Like, that would be violation of law. He can't otherwise um, violate his bail conditions, which didn't include a quote-unquote gag order, Mm -hmm. but do do include not committing other crimes. And threats, so something that would be like a direct threat, Mm -hmm. which he's always careful not to do. um, Comes to the edge. He comes to the edge. So I I mentioned uh, there this Anthony Pratt, the Australian businessman who reportedly spoke to Jack Smith uh, about Trump sharing classified uh, secrets with him. 60 Minutes Australia obtained audio of Pratt detailing how Trump bragged to him about military strikes and conversations with foreign leaders and presidents. So let's take a listen to that. And then I want to talk to you about on the on the other side. I hadn't even heard it. It hadn't even been on the news yet. He said, I just bombed Iraq today. And the president of Iraq called me up and said, you just leveled my city. And he said, and I said to him, OK, what are you going to do about it? So according to reporting, he also unveiled those secrets or spoke with about a dozen foreign officials about them. Mm-hmm. But Pratt was not mentioned in the classified uh, documents indictment. Why not? Well, it's not clear to me at what point Jack Smith and his team became aware of Pratt Mm -hmm. or this tape, this recording, this 60 Minutes Australia has or anything else about Pratt. But it is clear that they've now spoken with him. Uh, I think I've I've heard, you know, at least twice they've met with him and they could they do not necessarily have to supersede the indictment and add additional charges related to this. They could if they think that his evidence is credible and, you know, could Pratt himself could be bragging a little bit about this. We don't know for sure. But if they find that he's credible about what he describes Mr. Trump uh, telling him, both while he was president and after he was no longer president, they could potentially introduce that in trial as evidence called 404B evidence, evidence of Mr. Trump's intent, his knowledge, the absence of a mistake. So when they're trying to prove up that he knowingly mishandled classified information, other information that he was not just careless with it, but sharing it with people could go a long way uh, in support. of. So we could still hear more about Anthony Pratt. Uh, Well, we'll see. Before I let you go, I wanted to ask you just about this Georgia case, uh, because uh, one of the election lawyers, Sidney Powell, has pleaded guilty to six misdemeanor counts of conspiracy to commit election interference. Yesterday, Trump posted on Truth Social, quote, Miss Powell was not my attorney and never was. Doesn't that hurt the president's chances of trying to make the case that about attorney-client privilege? 
Well, I mean, it's certainly if you if 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 you were to believe him and if it were true, that would mean an attorney client privilege would be tough, as well as an advice of counsel defense. Although we know that Trump frequently does this, right? He'll say something one day and two years later, he says something completely contrary to it. And if these issues get litigated, if a defense of advice of counsel or if documents or information or materials, if he tries to keep those out under attorney client privilege, the lawyers will be arguing things like his his social media posts don't govern the legal issues here. And here's what the actual facts are. And so that still remains to be seen down the road, both in the Georgia litigation and probably also in the D.C. federal district court litiga- litigation. So Kenneth Chesbrough and Sidney Powell are now they've now both pled guilty to Trump lawyers. I think it's worth noting. What does that mean uh, for other defendants in Georgia? Well, I think a few things. I mean, now we've had three people plead guilty. We've had people who were actually pretty heavily involved, pretty high level circles to to Mr. Trump, who have actually admitted their guilt. And even though I tend to think that the sentences here were quite light for the significance of what they did, um, it shows, one, that they felt that the state had the evidence against them that was good enough to convict them. And so they wanted to try to cut a deal. Two, they are available to testify in future cases, including against Mr. Trump. And if Fonnie Willis believes their testimony is credible, I suspect that she will call them. And I think it sends a signal to others that, you know, the state's got a real case here. And, you know, you have a choice now. Try to work out a deal with the state or go and take your chances at trial. Mary McCord, so much legal expertise at this table. Thank you so much for joining me this evening. And still to come, World Central Kitchen has served more than 300 million meals to people who need it most. Chefs Jose Andres joins me on the organization's latest effort to help people suffering in Israel and Gaza coming up next. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Here on MSNBC, we are staying on top of several fast-moving stories. Today's news requires more facts. A new report finds the climate crisis is getting much worse. More context. We are seeing record numbers of people crossing into the United States just in the southern border. And more ground covered. The mission will continue to carry out regime change in the Gaza Strip. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more. With the war in the Middle East and subsequent humanitarian crisis now deep into its second week, three convoys filled with desperately needed aid have made their way into Gaza. And as President Biden's special, new special envoy to the Middle East told me yesterday, there will be much more to come in the days ahead. Our expectation and the substance of our discussion with all sides is that starting tomorrow, you'll be seeing a continuous flow of assistance moving. We want to build that flow up to the levels necessary to begin to meet Gaza's needs. So that's what David Satterfield, who is at the center of these negotiations, the very center, told me yesterday. But one thing is clear. 
What has arrived and what is set to come will only be a fraction of what is needed to help the more than 2 million people affected. Organizations like the World Food Program and Red Cross are doing what they can, but it's going to take a much broader network of groups stepping up to meet this moment. One of the groups stepping up is the World Central Kitchen, founded by Chef Jose Andres. He's no stranger to rolling up his sleeves and helping feed families trapped in war zones. Last year, he was in Ukraine, where he mobilized a team of chefs to help families there and those displaced in surrounding countries. Now he and his team are working to provide meals for those affected on both sides of this conflict. So far, they've fed more than 30,000 people. Joining me now is Jose Andres. He's a world-renowned chef and the founder of the World Central Kitchen. I want to just start with the World Central Kitchen is doing so much on the ground in so many parts of the world. You're working right now with partners on the ground in Israel, in Lebanon, in Gaza. Tell me a little bit about the work you're doing and why it was so important to you to be on the ground in all of those places during this conflict. Well, again, we, we go to these places very quickly because we believe that food and water— is a universal human right. And so after the terrible attack uh, by Hamas, where hundreds of thousands lost their life in Israel, uh, we send very quickly a team and we do what we do best, which is partner with local restaurants, with local NGOs and organizations to start bringing food to all the hundreds, thousands of people in Israel that were affected by this uh, terrible attack. We are right now distributing food probably in more than 240 different places uh, around uh, Israel. Uh, we are on our way to do over 200 something, 200,000 or more uh, hot meals. At the same time, obviously, we had uh, a good partner in the ground in Gaza. Uh, organization, which I love. They are mainly medical, but for different reasons, we brought our expertise with with food and we use their know-how of Gaza for mutual benefit of helping people. We've done also over 200,000 home meals in Gaza, but more important, we've been able to buy from whatever was available from local farmers. We bought every single produce we could, and we've been distributing also fresh fruits and vegetables. We've done over a million meals in the form of food uh, um, bags, like covering the needs of any any family going to the supermarket. But obviously, this is only a drop uh, of water in a very big ocean of need. We still have some food. We still can obviously deliver the food we do in Israel, but inside Gaza, the food is running short. Few trucks a day is not going to be covering the needs of a Gaza population that right now they are really suffering the horrors of this war, this conflict. You have been on the ground in war zones so many times before, given the remarkable work uh, that you and uh, your organization do. We're all waiting for this ground offensive to start. We don't know what it's going to look like, when it will start. How much harder will that make it to get food and water and supplies for organizations like the uh, the local ones you're working with um, on the ground once that begins? Myself, I've not uh, been in Gaza, even we've had teams of all Central Kitchen that they've been there uh, before. But yes, I can speak by the experience. Uh, unfortunately, I gained in what has been the first conflict of all Central Kitchen in a war zone, like was Ukraine. I just came back a few weeks ago from doing a two-week tour around the frontline areas uh, of Ukraine. And there you can see the devastation that war creates. So the people obviously suffering lack of water, uh, suffering the lack of fuel, 
where we see that obviously not only hospitals that they need that fuel and those generators to run uh, basic uh, machinery to keep people uh, alive, but everything else suffers. You no, know? any any kitchen cannot function properly because you all of a sudden it's not only you don't have food. Even if you had food, you don't have refrigeration. Um, mm. The complications use they keep pounding one uh, over each other, and then with all the destruction. Many of those kitchens that you could be using to feed people, every time they become more scarce. In Ukraine, we we had kitchens being hit. Every time we got a kitchen hit, obviously sometimes we lost human life. We saw how many UN workers they've been losing their lives just trying to do humanitarian work. Uh, but war zones is not something anybody wants to be part of. I've seen the horrors. I was in Irpin the day after Ukrainians took over. I saw what war does to humanity brings the worst of us the good news is that sometimes in the worst moments of humanity hopefully the best of humanity comes forward uh un uh, is gonna is gonna have a hard work in the in the weeks and months ahead and that's why organizations like world central kitchen like anera our partners like water mission who is the organization we partner always around the world to provide uh drinking water we're not coming up with the most creative ideas that once the situation uh, hopefully becomes more peaceful that we are uh, granted access uh, into Gaza that we can start doing the same thing we're doing in Israel, providing food and water to the people who are affected. Hopefully we will be able to start bringing uh, not only people but food with us so we can soon rather than later start easing all the pains that the people are going to be going. Right now you saw now people were celebrating 10 tracks, 14 tracks, only for food, I'm estimating that you need between 250 and 300 mm -hmm. trucks a day just to cover the basics. 10 trucks, it's okay, but again, it's just a drop of, of water. We're there as a special teams. Whatever we can get, get granted permission to go inside Gaza, we will go with the creativity that World Central Kitchen is known for, almost like if we were special teams. People that will need food, we will find creative ways to provide it. People that need water, we will find creative ways to provide it quick and fast. Jose Andres, I love how you lead with your heart and you have so much humanity uh, inside of you. Thank you for everything you and World Central Kitchen do. I appreciate you joining me this evening. We're coming right back after a quick break. Stay with us. Today, we saw a good example of what it's like to be president during a time of international crisis, which we are definitely in. President Biden was giving remarks on Bidenomics when he abruptly had to head to the Situation Room. I apologize. I have to go to the Situation Room with another issue that I have to deal with. But thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, we don't know what that meeting was about, although later this afternoon, we did hear from the White House a confirmation that they were warning that Iran was behind and supporting proxy attacks that we have seen. They were warning uh, that that was something we should be watching for and warning the Department of Defense. Who knows if that was what was in the meeting? But all of this is a reminder of the fact that during a global crisis, we only see a sliver of what's happening. That's on purpose. I've worked for two presidents, a secretary of state, and I can tell you that the work of diplomacy often happens best in the dark. That is why they don't discuss the status or details of conversations with Qatar or other third-party countries to get hostages home. They often don't talk about it or confirm it until they are very much on their way home because it could put the effort at risk. 
That is why President Biden has kept most of his messages urging delay and caution to Prime Minister Netanyahu private, because making a public case would make his private argument with Netanyahu less effective. Now, it all depends on what works, and that's obviously something we'll all be watching. It's also why it's important to understand that there are times, especially when it comes to global crises, where the decisions the president and his team make are not done through the prism of politics. The analysis of what helps or injures his reelection campaign doesn't, doesn't matter in the Situation Room. That's not what they're talking about in there. Even the clumsy efforts by the RNC and the usual suspects trying to make hay out of a video showing the president and first lady walking on the beach in Delaware this weekend. By the way, he also did many, many calls with foreign leaders and even the pope. But that all seemed to come across as silly background noise, because that's not what the president's focus is on right now. It's on how to honor the pain of the people in Israel how to prevent a humanitarian crisis in Gaza, how to bring American hostages home, and how to prevent a larger war, as it should be. Now, ultimately, he will be judged not by any one set of remarks, even a primetime address in the midst of all of this, but on what he actually does as president, as he should be. That's how any president should be judged. That does it for me tonight. We'll be back here on Sunday afternoon at 12 p.m. Eastern. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at msnbc.com.